Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. It's that time of the year again. School is back in session, and both children and parents are adjusting or readjusting to new schedules and routines. We're a stone's throw away from fall as the temperatures get lower and the leaves come down and crunch beneath our feet. It's a time of renewal, a new beginning for many of us. So in the spirit of that renewal, we're taking an opportunity to go back to the start. Every week here on the show, Stephanie James interviews motivators, scholars, educators, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping people live their best life. But what of the host? Who is Stephanie James, and what makes her tick? Why does she do what she does? We'll find out this week, because we're turning the tables a little bit. After all, it's tough to know where you're going without knowing where you've been. Welcome to a special episode of The Spark. I'm your host, Chris Lanfear. So I guess where we start is, what made you want to become a psychotherapist? So interestingly, um... I never did want to be a psychotherapist. Uh, growing up, I had my parents, uh, my father and stepmother, both psychologists in Austin. Um, my uncle Lloyd was a family attachment specialist therapist here in Fort Collins. And my aunt Marsha worked for Foothills Gateway. Uh, and I had an aunt who was a dance and movement therapist. So my family was full of therapists. And that was nothing, that, that was never anything I aspired to be. Um, I actually went to school right out of high school. Um, I went to Brooks School, which is an art institute in California, and I wanted to be a fashion designer. So that's right out of high school. That's kind of where I was at. You know, this was the mid 80s. I was definitely into that whole music scene. Um, and so that's where I ended up my first year, um, and loved it. And I actually say, boy, it's, it's so fast in LA. I always think I lived about 15 years in that one year. So what, what ended up happening is, is actually the following year I had gotten into the art Institute in London, a girlfriend and I both had gotten in and this is 1986. And that summer, the American embassy was bombed and both of our parents pulled us out and said, you guys aren't going. So I was left with a summer, just not really knowing what I was gonna do. I went to UNC for one quarter, and I think the culture shock of being, you know, going from LA to going to Greeley, Colorado, um, and being 19 years old, I was like, I cannot handle this, and ended up dropping out of school and working the rest of that year. And it was actually our first guest, Larry Bloom, who uh, he was a professor at CSU in the psychology department and a family friend. So I went over and talked to him, just kind of saying, I don't know what to do with my life. You know, I don't, I don't know what direction to go. And after our conversation, kind of the conclusion was, you know, you're a natural at this, he said. And um, I know the advisor, so I have someone you can go talk to. And literally, that's what I went and did. And the rest was history. It, it changed the course of my life. Do you ever wish that you had stayed in school and become a fashion designer? I, I think what what I loved, uh, I, I did a quarter there of interior design, 
And that's been more a passion that has stayed with me. Even at, up to a few years ago, I used to stage houses for a friend of mine who was a realtor in Cheyenne. Um, so it was that was kind of a side thing that I loved. But, you know, this was way before HGTV. And, you know, at those times, during those times, it was like nobody can make a living being an interior designer. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't have regrets at all. I, I always feel like life presents these opportunities and um, kind of has a way of guiding us to the next place that we're supposed to be in our lives. So I think it happened the way it was supposed to happen. What was your childhood like? My early childhood was amazing. I always feel so blessed because I had 13 years of, I mean, we, we just had a lot of family. I grew up with both sets of grandparents living on farms. Uh, one set of grandparents, my mom's parents lived in Timnath. So we were always there. And the other ones lived in Big Springs, Nebraska. And I had a really close family. I had a younger brother. I do. I still do have a younger brother. Um, and uh, I, I just, that, those my childhood memories are so happy. We did tons in the mountains. Um, my parents were really active. So we did, you know, uh, lots of skiing, hiking, being in the mountains. So I really developed this love for that. My father was a professor at CSU. And so academia was always something that was, I, I'd love to go hang out at my dad's office and I always loved that environment. Um, I, I would write on his chalkboard and take his economics test when I was old enough to read because <laughs> I just like to circle the dots, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I feel really blessed. I feel like I had such a golden childhood. I did everything. You know, I was literally, I played piano for six years. I did ballet, tap, jazz, dancing. I played every sport as a kid. I was um, in eighth grade. I was the only female on the all-male soccer team. Girls just didn't play soccer then. Were you good at soccer? I was okay. I, I remember getting elbowed in the chest and going like, the guys are kind of mean to me. You know, they kind of picked on me because they didn't really want, you know, a gal on the field. They weren't real thrilled about that. I didn't have anything to elbow, but I, I remember it really hurting. Um, but yeah, I, I played softball and basketball, um, ran track. You know, I was, I was just involved in everything. And oh, and I sang, um, you know, so it was just it was a super involved childhood. And so it was wonderful. And then all kind of came crashing down um, at 13 when my grandmother that I was super close to died. Um in our home. That was really, that was really jarring. Um, and then my mother and father, uh, very shortly thereafter went through a really bloody divorce. And so that just kind of rocked that whole happy childhood and, and really changed things. How did you feel when your parents divorced? Um, I would say, uh, that was one of the most difficult times of my life because I never saw it coming. Nobody did. Um, my mother included, um, because we were, my, my parents were very social. Um, we had lots of, lots of family. Uh, when I say get togethers, not just with our family, but my parents always had, they were in bridge club and I think the gourmet club and, you know, my father being a professor at CSU and my mother owned her own business. And so, um, 
they were just very social people. And by all looks and, and to all of us, you know, to my brother and I, um, we thought everything was golden. My parents never fought in front of us. I never saw my mother cry. Um, you know, I didn't see my dad ever raise his voice at my mom. Every, I saw him hug, you know, so it was, it was very, very shocking. Um, actually, I, I had started my first book with the scene in the driveway that took place uh, the night that it all came out, uh, that my father was having an affair. And it, it literally, it was like my brother and I watching from the second story window as our childhood, as we know it, was completely shattered. So um, it was devastating. You know, it was really a difficult time. And and my family split apart. Um, I ended up moving with my father and my brother stayed with my mom. And so for the next few years, um, yeah, it, w- it was hard. Things were really, really difficult. And then at 16, I ended up when my father and stepmother moved to Austin, I stayed with my mom. Were you more close with your mother? I wasn't. Um, I was I was a daddy's girl for sure growing up. Um, although I was just as close with my mother. You know, I think when you're young, um, I mean, I always super loved my mom, but I, I idealized my dad. You know, he was, he was who I just, we, we had, you know, um, we just did a lot of things together. You know, he'd include me in, I mean, I always just wanted to be around him, whether we were raking the leaves or, you know, he liked to take a nap every day. I'd go and just snuggle by him. Even if I wouldn't fall asleep, I'd just be snuggled up to him. And, um, you know, he really, uh, would share things with me. So I had a love of poetry and writing and music and, um, so I just, I, I don't know, maybe it was also being the firstborn, but because I was so close to dad, it was a natural thing for me to leave and go with him. But then at 16, when they were moving back to Austin, you know, I'd grown up here. I had, you know, I'd, I'd gone to preschool academy with, with people I had known since I was four years old and was still in school with. And I was going to be a junior in high school and I didn't want to go. So I was visiting my mother and ended up staying here. So, yeah, and, and that was hard. I was a really angry kiddo for quite some time. I wasn't, wasn't the happy-go-lucky spark, that's for sure. When it first happened, did you talk with your parents about the divorce and how you felt about it? No, I didn't. Actually, that's, that's a little bit more where Larry comes in. That was when I first met Larry Bloom because um, my stepsister, uh, my to-be stepsister... At 13 years old, she was my best friend in seventh grade. And then the next year, we found out we were going to be stepsisters. So we went to go talk to Larry to say, you know, because my uh, my parents knew Larry. And so we went so we could continue our friendship. And, and we did. You know, the cool thing was um, by the time we were sophomores in high school, we were cheerleaders on the same squad and got along wonderfully. I absolutely adored her. So... Yeah. I mean, there were definitely lots and lots of challenges. It was a really difficult time. By the time you got to high school, you had plenty to rebel against. What do you remember about that time in your life? After um, my dad and stepmother moved to Austin, um, that following year, my junior year, I quit the cheerleading team. Um, I didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And for the next two years, I, I... dated the same guy mainly. Um, but I was really into social stuff, of course, you know, 
in high school we're all consumed with our friends and that's the most our social scenes the most important thing um and and I did I had so many great friends and I think you know I had a lot of fun but it was also you know I, I carried around a lot of sadness inside of me to be honest um I drank um my senior year I got real into uh what began my junior year as a new age, you know, new wave kind of scene, uh, definitely kind of punkish, you know, dyed my hair black and, you know, thought I was so cool. Um, and, and so that was kind of the way I rebelled. And I think from 16 on kind of adapted this mentality of, you know, I got to do it all on my own. Nobody's there for me. Um, and there was probably something in there that, you know, as, as, as an adult, I've had to to work on changing within myself, which was, I can't rely on anybody. And, um, so I just didn't need anybody. I kind of convinced myself I didn't need anybody else. So I guess the way I rebelled was by being distant in some ways, if that's, if that makes sense. Well, and it sounds too, like you were sort of learning to be independent because you were the one you could count on and you didn't know maybe who else you could count on. Absolutely. When you go from a family that's so intact that's so reliable, that's so consistent to having none of that be the same. Um, I, I do think that it really, it changes that, in, you know, internally. And, and it is like, okay, now what? And even though I absolutely loved, um, love my stepdad um, and am very, very close to him now, I consider him one of my best friends. At the time when I moved in with my mom and, and him and my brother, um, they hadn't been married very long. So um, I probably wasn't really easy to live with. And uh, I, I was, you know, like I said, I, I, and, and I say an angry kid, but I, I, I was always a happy kid. But I, I think my anger was I, I had a lot of underlying hurt. You know, I, I was I was pretty wounded through the whole divorce scenario. And so, yeah, it, it took me some some time to deal with that. And I definitely... I rebelled more in art school, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Was just a wild onion and, and got caught in the whole music scene and uh, all that good stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, finally I came to my senses. <laughs> you talked about how, you know, academia and, and uh, education had been such a big thing. Could part of the rebellion have been like, well, you know, fuck you, I'm going to go to art school. Yeah, that that's a, that that would have been great. Uh, no, I I think I just I loved that. I always loved fashion, and I had been modeling since I was six years old. I, I modeled at six years old for Sears catalog, so I was always in the you know fashion scene, and I had done um, some modeling. Uh, so I, I kind of that was appealing to me too. And when I got to LA, um, I I modeled for a couple designers that were there. And so I just kind of liked that whole world, I think, at the time, you know, so it was it was kind of my other alter ego. I there, There's the other side of me. I mean, I love academics and I still I mean, I just I crave that. I, you know, like so many people will always be a lifelong learner, but I love that other creative side, you know, and, and so it was more tapping into that than it was that that wasn't really my screw you everybody at the time. It was um, just like. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to art school in California, you know? Uh, so it was definitely more that than, yeah. Well, I, I can attest to your love of fashion because in the, I don't know, three or four years that I've known you, I'm not sure I've ever seen you wear the same thing twice. <laughs> 
I've also never seen you wear like blue jeans or even pants. Like really? you, you have a dress for probably. I feel like you could wear the same dress for, or not the same dress, but you could wear a different dress every day for like five years. <laughs> that is hilarious, and and so I and I will tell you the secret to that, Chris, is that I shop at Ark, and so if for people that don't know, Ark is a thrift store here in town, and so. Like, I pride myself on I never spend more than $10 for a dress. <laughs> so <laughs> that way I can switch out, you know, my wardrobe whenever I want. And I would have to say everyone in my family that are female have benefited from my <laughs> love of fashion. Because when I get done wearing something for a season, I pass it on to either my sister, my sister-in-law, or my mom. I used to be able to do it, you know, once in a while with my girls, um... I think their fashion's a little different than mine now, but so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I like it's fun. It's creative. It's a creative outlet for me, for sure. It's interesting. I didn't know that you had modeled before. So like, tell me what that was like. Well, I mean, that was exciting. It was fun. When I got back home, um, I, I did wedding shows, uh, modeled for, did wedding shows and stuff like that. But um the most exciting thing I did was when I was modeling, there was a big show at the Bonaventure Hotel in, in LA and my parents flew out for it and my grandpa came and my uncle Ross and Aunt Beverly who lived there in Ontario. And and that was a big deal at the time because like People Magazine was there and um, LA Times, you know, that, that seemed, that, you know, was runway modeling. And so that was a big deal. It was just modeling their fashions, you know. So, you know, but it, it was never anything big. I, I have to be honest, I blew my one chance of um, interviewing with a real legitimate modeling agency. Tell me about that. <laughs> so the first designer I had worked for, um, she had a connection with David York of New York. And um, I knew I needed to be back at the school at three o'clock because I had someone picking me up for this interview. And I had partied the night before, being the little college student I was. And I, when I look back on it, again, you know, there's something deeper in my life, I feel like, that's always been guiding me. And, and obviously, it came into play. Um, because I don't, I, we never hung out at the beach. Even though we lived right by Long Beach and Huntington Beach, we never, hardly, rarely went and hung out at the beach. But that day, I was. Um, and I remember I needed to be back and showered and ready. And I was just laying on the beach and I remember going, what time is it? And I literally had half an hour at that point to get back. It was, it was probably at least a 30 minute drive back. Um, and then to try to get ready and, and be ready for my ride. Well, I'll never forget because I, I got back to the dorms and I walk in the room and literally my roommate is in tears and I'm like, what's going on? And she said, there was a limo here to pick you up. And this woman that was the designer that I had been modeling for, she's like, she's dropped you from the line. And, you know, basically you're, you're not going to be modeling again for her. And you blew your chance. Like you'll, you don't, and you, and that's the way it is. You don't get another chance. So that was kind of one of those interesting things where I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's, I'm, I'm not supposed to do that. Although, you know, I, I was bummed, but it, it was definitely self-sabotage. And, um, you know, my life wasn't supposed to go in that 
direction. It's always been interesting. I was thinking about this today that from 19 years old, I really got into a, a different way of thinking. And I remember at 19, sitting in the bathtub, reading Leo Pascalia's book, Love. And as I was reading it going, oh yeah, this is what it's all about. This is it. And, and, and I remember one of my roommates at the time had said to me, God, I am so sick of all this positive thought. I'm so sick of all this positivity. And, and it was so funny to me at the time because it was never you know superficial or unreal for me. It's just I knew there was something that we could do about the way that we thought and the way that we felt. And I've always been super optimistic. Even, even when I went through my, my stuff you know, in junior high and, and high school, I always knew there was, there was something deeper and greater, and not just in me, but in everyone. You know, and, and if there's one thing that I was aware of is like, I could see that in other people. It, it was evident for me as a little kid. I loved everybody. I remember going to preschool academy, walking in the front door of that porch. And literally the kids would be like lined up, like waiting for me to come in and like jump up and down. We'd all jump up and down together and be really excited. Um, so there, there was always this piece of me that felt driven by, I guess I, I would just call it a higher calling. So even though I'd be disappointed about things, I knew there was always something else, something else I was supposed to be doing. So you come home and Larry tells you, you're kind of a natural. Why, why not become a therapist? Where did you go from there? Like, what was the next logical step from that? Well, so I, I enrolled and got into CSU for that fall. Th- that conversation was in the spring. So I, I was able to get in that fall. And um, the quickest way to becoming a private clinical therapist um, that we had talked about is I'll, I'll get my master's in social work. I get a degree in clinical social work. So I did the social work program at CSU and um, knew, I would already knew this from my parents saying, okay, well, you need to get some work experience. So I knew right after that, that I needed to get a job. And um, so in between undergrad and grad school, I went up and worked at the care unit of Colorado, which was a psychiatric hospital um, on Mississippi and Potomac, right outside of Humana Hospital, and uh, stayed there for almost two years before getting into DU for grad school. Working in a psychological hospital has got to be kind of trying as well. What do you remember about that time? Um, So that was definitely baptism by fire. Uh, when I first started working there, I worked on the adult unit, which was people, um, where, where I worked was with people that were mainly literally strapped down to beds and four point restraints coming off of, they were detoxing from drugs or alcohol and needed, uh, 15 minute checks where we'd take their blood pressure, their temperature, heart rate, pulse, that kind of stuff. So, um, Sitting beside some of these people uh, coming off of cocaine or, you know, going through DTs uh, with alcohol, it was pretty intense. And so, yeah. Well, yeah, you're going from, I mean, not too long before you were runway modeling for designers in L.A. And now you are in a psych ward, you know, help trying to help people in, in some cases who are who have addictions or, are, you know, deeply disturbed that's got to be its own kind of culture shock, right? It absolutely was. Um, I also was a single mom at the time. And so it was really an interesting time in my life 
Um, I lived in downtown Denver and I would drive the 45 minute route to drop off my daughter and then go to work in Aurora. And so just that in and of itself was a lot of, you know, um, I had a lot of adaptation I had to do for that. Um, but I have to tell you when I, what I ended up doing for a year and a half was I worked on the adolescent psych unit as one of the mental health workers at first. And then I was super blessed. I was one of the, I was the only person at the time that was on um, the therapy staff that didn't have a master's at the time. So it was, I kind of worked my way up into that because I just kind of had this natural knack for connecting and understanding and, and being with people. And so um, the woman who ran the program um, saw that in me. And so it was, it was just such an honor to be a part of that therapy staff and work with these kids. And that was back in the day before managed care. So like we had those kids for like seven to nine months sometimes. And um, again, I mean, my God, that was an intense and fantastic um, experience. I mean, I could probably tell you lots of stories. But <laughs> You've gone from kind of the L.A. party scene to a short time later, you're a single mother, you're you're working with very you know difficult individuals how did you balance that environment and and being a single mother you know what what was interesting is during that time um so i i had right before i came to denver i had been recently divorced and i decided um and i was a young mom i i had my daughter at 21 so um i think i was 24 at the time and so I literally decided I'm not dating. I just want to focus on my career, going to work, and then I would just come home. And, and, and one of the things, one of my greatest memories with my daughter at the time is, I mean, I, I didn't have much money at all. I mean, I was very poor. By the time my bills were paid, I had about 50 bucks a week to live on. But I remember what was so much fun is I would come home and I had this almost like boombox stereo at the time. And I loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I had met them several times when I lived in LA and did that whole scene. And uh, so I would put on Red Hot Chili Peppers and my daughter and I would dance in the living room. She was four at the time. So I guess I was 25. So she was four at the time and we'd dance in the living room. And that's kind of how we'd like reintegrate back together at the end of the day. Um, and so really night consisted of dinner and a bath every night and then I'd read her stories every night and that's kind of what kept me balanced I just I just focused on what was there that's always been one of the things I think too for me um, it can be negative sometimes I think but also can be really positive as I'm really present in the moment so I could just really be there I could really be at work and focus on what I was doing and I didn't have regrets I didn't think about LA you know I didn't think about any other life it was that was my life then you know, and I was super invested in, in my friends. I worked with the most amazing women who became my dearest friends. And I and I loved the kids. You know, I, I loved the kids that I worked with. And so that was such, I just felt like I was growing so much. And it was just such an enriching experience. And to be in that environment with all these psychiatrists. And, you know, I'd learned so much from the charge nurses. Um, I did a brief stint where I worked on, we, we had um, units that kind of would go out like spokes on a wheel. And, and then like the nurses unit was like a hub, if that makes sense. 
And so the unit right next to the adolescent unit was the National Center for Treatment of Dissociative Disorders. And so it was a unit that housed adults that had multiple personality disorders. And I ended up uh, working for them doing their discharge summaries. And that was fascinating in and of itself because you had to go through training, you know, to even hang out with um, some of the individuals that had very unique challenges. Um, so yeah, it was it was really a unique time, and I look back with it with totally fond memories. I mean, the best girlfriends. We would if we weren't seeing kids. We were in the office just laughing our butts off. You know, it was it was great. I mean, that that sounds very kind of challenging, uh, dealing with you know people who have, you know, multiple personalities or, you know, what's now called dissociative identity disorder. Were there any experiences when you were, when you were doing that, that stand out to you? Uh, there, there's a couple. I mean, there, there's one that's more tragic and one that's more positive. So I guess the, the, the tragic one where I learned a lot was when we actually housed one of the MPD patients on our unit because she was 15 and she wasn't old enough to be with the other adults. So even though she had multiple personality disorder and this woman, this young woman had 14 distinctive personalities. And so we had to be well-versed in them. There, there were some really disturbing facts about, and, and I don't want to traumatize, you know, our audience, but you know, she came from a generational cult, religious cult. And so there's some very bizarre uh, ritualistic things that have been done to this individual. So she truly would split. You could just see her really change. Highly suicidal, had, you know, scars all up and down her arms. And one day, right at 3.30, she had planned it out very well. I don't know who in the world let her go outside and go for a walk with the other kids because she really was a high risk. While she was on a walk, she had... Um, saw and found and tucked in her shoe some broken glass. When we had shift change, and she, like I said, she had it planned out very well, um, she and two other kids barricaded themselves in one of their bedrooms and all slit their wrists. Superficially, not, not enough to, only one of them, I think. One of them, it was deep enough they had to go up to Humana to get stitches. But within that scene, I mean, we were, we heard the code red go off and then we were literally there pushing down the barricade. You know, we, we, we it was me and I, I'll never forget the psychiatrist on staff and um, a couple people as they were breaking through the barricade were hurt. One person broke their wrist. I mean, it was, it was a very traumatic experience. And um, just the reality of that level of, um, mental health issue and the, and the traumas that can happen around it, I think was really a wake up for me. Like, wow, this is really serious. This is very different than the other kids that I was dealing with. This was a whole new world, a whole new level of intensity. So that was probably the most traumatic. I mean, I, I can remember, I didn't even smoke, but going to the, to the, we had this outside lounge area and smoking, you know, just like, shaking and then having a cigarette because everybody else was. And I, I just like, I, it was very, very scary. I think there were so many successes as far as seeing kids just heal, actually. You know, it, it was seeing kids reclaim or, or for the first time claim self-esteem and, you know, feel good about themselves or, you know, um, 
be able to heal from their own sexual abuse or, you know, I mean, th these were definitely hardcore customers. I mean, we had people uh, from all over the nation. Uh, so there were people that had shot people that had been in gangs in Chicago. Uh, there were lots of different, different people. And I think I shared on a different episode, I think one of the greatest times that always stands out in my mind is when, so there, there was um, an African-American 18-year-old kid who was on the unit and uh, I'll never forget this kid because he intimidated the hell out of me just in sheer size. He was a real big boy and he was tough. He was a real tough, you know, gang kid. And I think I had gone down to tell him it was time to go to sleep. It was time for everybody to go in their rooms. And basically he was like, you know, Fuck you bitch, you know, and, and yelled at me. And at the time, you know, I, I of course I, was like, this is no big deal. You need to get to your room. And I acted like, no, no big deal. And he, and he did, thank God. But I like went to the lounge, you know, the staff lounge and started bawling. I was just really intimidated by this kid. And I thought, hey, this kid could kill me. Well, so the next day I had told my girlfriend, Dawn, who was uh, the ropes course therapist, uh, kind of what had happened. She goes, okay, yep, we're going to get you two up on the pamper pole on the high ropes course together. And so literally what happened is they they had both of us. So we climb up these very, very tall telephone poles. And then the task was that we had to come together. So you're like on a high wire. You're holding onto a wire. You're belayed up. But you, you're on this high wire. And then you have to meet in the middle, help each other around each other's bodies, and then go to the opposite sides. So we just get up to the top of the pamper poles. And I'm looking at him and he just starts crying. He's afraid of heights. He's just freaking out. He doesn't want to even move, but he, he gets enough courage and finally he goes. And then even though I was belayed up, I know the closer I got to him, I'm like, he's pushing me off. He's going to push me off the wire. And instead he was um, amazing. We really helped each other get around each other's bodies so that we could be safe on the wire and then go to the other sides. And then they belayed us down and once we were unharnessed, I will never forget this kid runs up to me and swoops me up in his arms, literally picks me up off the ground in a hug. I think he was so damn thankful just to be alive. And we ended up uh, going back into the unit and he and I sat at the end of that hallway probably for an hour and a half and had the most connected, just uh, incredible conversation and connection and it ended up changing the course of his treatment and, and his stay with us. So that was just amazingly powerful. It was a powerful experience. So just what is NOCO FM, you ask? NOCO FM is a 24-7 internet radio station, always streaming at noco.fm. We play all types of music from all over the world. Rock and roll, hip-hop, indie, electronic, experimental, everything has a place at NoCo FM. Well, except for bluegrass. There are other places you can hear that. But we're also a podcasting network, producing one-of-a-kind programming like the show you're enjoying right now. We have talk shows, original comedy, music shows curated by real people, and a lot more. So if you like what you're hearing, make NoCo FM a part of your day. And tell your friends... That's N-O-C-O dot F-M. Programming on NOCO FM is supported by its listeners and by Audible.com, 
With over 180,000 titles to choose from, Audible.com allows you to listen to an immense library of books for every taste on your iPhone, Android, Kindle, tablet, or computer. Audible.com has a special offer for listeners which includes a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial. Learn more and get your free audiobook now at noco.fm slash audible. Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different. Different. This is NOCO FM. Where did you go after the uh, hospital? Ironically, after there, I ended up moving back to Fort Collins. Um, and this is kind of this is kind of an interesting story because, like I said, I mean, so I had these three really really tight girlfriends that I worked with, and I still had really good friends from college, even high school. And um, before I knew I was going to move to Fort Collins. I'll never forget this because it was, I think it was January 14th and we went, uh, my aunt owned a condo, which was really this large home up in Vail. It was three different floors and it slept 14 people. So we filled it up. I had all my friends from work and I had friends, uh, from college, old, you know, old friends from Fort Collins. So we literally had about 14 people there and we'd had this wonderful weekend of skiing and sledding. I mean, we just, we'd had so much fun. And the last night we were there, I'll never forget. This is one of those things where you can't explain why things happen. It was totally serendipitous. And I got ready to go to bed that night and I was bunking with a friend of mine, Elle, and as we're getting ready to go to bed, she's like, what's wrong? Cause I was tearing up. And I said, I don't know how to explain this. I'm like, I said, I'm just getting the strongest hit that I need to move back home. And she's like, why in the world would you move back home? You know, you've got all these great friends in Denver. You're the only non-masters person on the therapy team. You know, your career is going great. And I said, I can't explain it. All that I know is that I am really getting this hit. I need to move back. So I wake up the next morning and call my mom and said, uh, you know, we're getting ready to head back, but I just, I have to tell you, mom, I feel like I need to, I need to come back home. And she's like, well, that's really interesting because they owned a second home and the guy that was leasing from them, the basement, she said he needed to move out. And so he'll be out the 1st of February. He had given us his notice. So that, that, you know, areas available for you if you want it. And I said, yeah, I do. I'm literally going to go back and give them two weeks notice. And so that's what I did. Like I felt very, very convicted. Now my, my lease was also ironically, again, this is serendipitous, uh, up February 1st. So I was able to go back, give everybody two weeks notice, came home within just a few days, had a job working for Foothills Gateway. So that was all great. But the bigger thing was three weeks after, and it made the front page of the Rocky Mountain News, the adolescent unit shut down, never to reopen. And the front page of the newspaper said, um, psychiatric abuses charged. And what was happening, unbeknownst to any of us, besides maybe some of the upper people, um, was that 
we had scouts that were going out across the nation finding these kids to bring into treatment and running out their insurance. And they would get paid $5,000 as a kickback from getting these kids into treatment. So because of that, they had shut down the unit. All of my girlfriends were laid off. So as a single mom, there's no way I would have survived it. I would have been in for another six-month lease. I would not have had a job. I, I don't know what I would have done. And so when I say, you know, earlier, there, there's always been like this guiding presence. I mean, there was something directly. I mean, it wasn't me. There was something greater than me directing me to go back home. And so I did. The irony of that was then I got into grad school at DU. So I was living in Fort Collins and commuting to DU the following year for grad school, but that was fine. Um, I think it was all supposed to be that way, obviously. And um, went to grad school after that and worked for Denver Senior Counseling Group for the summer. Um, I, I did my internship here at Mountain Crest on the adolescent unit and got hired with them as well uh, to do their geriatric group program that summer. And then ended up um, applying for and getting the job at what used to be called Southeast Mental Health. Now it's called Peak Wellness in Cheyenne. I was the program manager for a cognitive behavioral program. So were you commuting to Cheyenne then from Fort Collins? Yes, I was. I did that for about nine whole months um, because I did not want to move to Cheyenne. I'm telling you, because we had made fun of Cheyenne, you know, for ever, uh, you know, being so, so at first you're going from Fort Collins to Denver for school, uh-huh. you get out of school, you graduate, uh-huh. and then you're going from Fort Collins to Cheyenne for work. <laughs> right. Right. I know. Crazy which is, which is an even longer commute. Well, actually it wasn't, it was a little bit shorter, but man, was it more boring. So I definitely, I made weekly stops at the library and I'd get books on CD and literally that's what I would do for that 45 minute commute. Um, made the time go by a lot faster. How did you like working in Wyoming? I mean, other than the commute. I, I, um, I actually, I loved it. Um, I loved what I did there. I worked with seriously mentally ill. So I spent most of my time during the next three years hanging out, uh, all during the day, either individual therapy or groups, which was up to 18 people, um, that had paranoid schizophrenia. When, when you're working with people who have those types of disorders, obviously you're, you're, you're being exposed to a hefty amount of trauma and anger and sadness with these people. How do you, how do you let that go at the end of the day? Like how, how do you make sure that you don't take that home? Well, again, I, I, that's a great question. And I think part of it is my ability to compartmentalize as far as really being in the present moment. So like when I'm off work, I'm off work. Um, and I was remarried by then and I loved, I, I ended up having another daughter, but I loved my home. I loved my friends. I've always had just amazing friends. I was involved in, I started a book group, which I loved. I started a women's spirituality group. So, and, I, and I've always been super into personal growth. So I'm always reading. I'm always searching for um, deepening my sense of spirituality. And so those are really the things that always kept me super grounded. And 
and I used to love to work out. <laughs> so I still, I still kind of love it, but I just don't do it as much. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, I, I just, I would focus on those things and I felt so replenished by those things that I could just come anew every day to work. And, and, and again, I would have to say, you know, it is one of the things about me. I am such a people person. Like there are people that are extroverts and then there are people that are extroverts. And I get so much energy from other people. I love to be with other people so much. Um, I mean, I definitely need my alone time to refuel as well. But um, I always just loved whoever I was with. I mean, I was no different than that same little four-year-old girl um, back at preschool academy. And so I always thought it was interesting. Um, I could be with an individual that was really suffering at times um, with schizophrenia. And I think, wow, if my mom, not that my mom's judgmental, mind you, but like if my mom was in this room, she might be scared by the physical attributes of this person. And, you know, I, I think if that's a gift that I have, it, it's to be able to look into someone's eyes and, and see the beauty of who they are beyond whatever the disorder is beyond even the behavior, um, or sometimes even the words that they're saying, so I had an ability to connect um, with who I was with. So I never felt burdened. I never took on their angst. And I guess that's what helped me stay in, in the state that I could be. If, if there was a term I would use that I still use today in private practice is I feel like I'm good at holding the space. You know, I, I can be really present with somebody and not take on. I mean, I definitely, my heart's right there and I feel empathy and compassion deeply, but I don't take on their their pain. I don't take it on and it's not burdensome or um, it's very rare in my career, although I have experienced it. Um, definitely there's, there's a small handful of times I've experienced secondary trauma, but for the most part, and now what's a 30 year career, um, I've been really able to work on that. Just holding the space, just being present. What is secondary trauma? So secondary trauma is something that caretakers often, um, and I say professional caretakers, so it can happen to nurses or doctors as well, um, people in the helping profession. Um, it's when you are hearing a traumatic event and you develop trauma-like symptoms as a result of that. So that that is like you are taking on that person's trauma. And because I am um, a trauma specialist and I've been trained um in EMDR now in my last 12 years in, in private practice, um, I've worked with some individuals who have gone through horrific things, um, you know, without going into their stories. I, you know, I've, I've worked with a fireman that was in the Oklahoma City bombings, you know, that was one of the first rescue responders into the daycare. Um, and so the things that he experienced were extremely traumatic. Being with people um, that have had horrible things happen to them you know, here's the thing, I guess, and just to explain, I guess, where the secondary trauma came came from. Did I give you enough of a definition of mm -hmm. that? Um, I think for me, when I would have a traumatic, a secondary trauma experience would be when I had actually known the person and let's say been doing therapy with them for six months and we'd really developed, you know, a very strong, close relationship and then at that point, we had kind of, if you will, in therapy, a lot of times it's like you're peeling layers of an onion and you kind of get to the heart of things as you continue. And let's say after six months or sometimes even later, I had one person, it was after a year of therapy, 
kind of unearthed this deep trauma that they hadn't been able to share before. And at that point, it was like, it's, it's different when you meet someone for the first time and they say something horrible has happened. You don't have a relationship with them. You're able to compartmentalize a little bit more, even though it's horrible and it's, you know, it's awful to hear having a very established relationship and then having someone tell you, yes, I was raped, you know, by my grandfather from the age of 11 to 16. Um, I couldn't desensitize myself from that. I couldn't be separate than that. And while I kept it together at the time, those are the times I would go home and bawl my eyes out and, and feel like I didn't know, I didn't know if I could function, uh, sometimes for a day. Uh, you know, I, I would at those times cancel clients the next day. You know, I, I would, uh, just know I need to go resource myself. I need to do something because I am carrying this and I, I can't get over it. It was all of a sudden like it would have this feeling of the world crashing down and, and, and the realization that, you know, I, I try to, I, I tout myself as a reality therapist. I don't, I don't try to see things through rose, rose colored glasses, even though I'm a total optimist. But at those points, it's like the world just looks ugly and, and I can't see the light in those moments. And so I, I, I know enough that I go, man, I got, I got to do something to resource myself. I don't stay in that long. Thank God it's only happened. Like I said, you know, not even quite a handful of times, but yeah, absolutely. Um, wipe me out the times that it did. And, and I think that's one of the important things I guess to, to say in, in that is that that's my hope. And when people go to therapy and times where I've, I've sought help when I've gone through something like that, um, is that we have the resources and that we don't have to try to manage those kind of things alone. And so, you know, half the battle is knowing that there's resources there. You don't, you know, you can, you can reach out and do something with those times where it's like, yeah, this is, I am, you know, totally derailed here. And, and just hearing you respond to that question, like it, it, you, you have a very clear visceral response to that. Would it be fair to say that you know trauma well from both sides of the, the looking glass from perhaps the professional side and then as the, the experience side as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. I am an EMDR therapist and I have had EMDR therapy and that's why I know it works. You know, I've, I've experienced that myself. So yeah, absolutely. And, and honestly, you know, Chris, that's one of the things when I think about, you know, the tough times that I went through as a kid, um, as an adolescent more appropriately, um, and, and really the, the deep challenges that I've gone through in my life, I, I think as a good therapist and, um, even, even as a good host on the show, you know, when we're connecting with other people, we have to have experienced something in our lives and, and nobody comes out of childhood unscathed. Everyone has wounds. And I do think out of those wounds can come our greatest gifts. And if it's nothing else, but a very deep understanding and ability to connect with people, I feel like I've, I've had enough pain, um, 
hey, Lord, I, I know I've had enough pain. I, there's times I say to the universe, you know, okay, let me get the lesson just really, you know, pain-free. I promise I'll learn it. <laughs> let it let it be something easy. Um, and most times it's not. Uh, but I, I do think because I've experienced it at that visceral level, and not just secondary trauma, I've, I've definitely experienced my own trauma. Um, it's not something you just read out of a book and have an intellectual understanding about. It is visceral. It is when, when your own heart's been broken open, it's from that place. I, I love there's a book by Elizabeth Lesser called Broken Open. It's from that broken place that the phoenix can rise from the ashes, so to speak. Um, and, and we can gift the rest of the world with our own mercy and deep understanding, our compassion and empathy for the human condition that we all share. Nobody's exempt. So you're in private practice now uh, in Fort Collins. You're not commuting to Cheyenne anymore, <laughs> thankfully. What, yes. uh, what made you leap into private practice? Um, it was always my dream. It was what I'd gone to grad school for, even though in grad school they said, you can't hang out your shingle. That was what they used to say. You know, you'd hang your sign outside of your office. Um, they said, you know, the market's saturated. Just so don't, you know, don't hang out your shingle. And so, although that's what I wanted to do. That's what I went to grad school for. Clinical social work. Um, emphasis on psychodynamics and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, most of my research was in cognitive behavioral therapy at the time, which was why I ended up running that program in Cheyenne at the mental health center. Um, so it, it was interesting. I think I had to do everything that I did, um, in all these different walks of life with all these variety of people. I was also a counselor, a social work counselor in the school district for 10 years in Cheyenne. I, I think I had to experience all these different capacities so that, I have this sense that no matter who walks through my door, I have a reference point in private practice. You know, there's something I can connect to through my past. And it, it I, I feel very deeply passionate about it. And it was through actually my, my family's own traumas, uh, an incident uh, without going into it uh, that, that was going on in my extended family one of my extended family members had tried to take his life three separate times after coming back from, he was a pilot in the air force. And the reality of that rocked my world so much that I, I finally said, I've got to do, you know, I, I got to live what's most important. What's in my heart that I've always wanted to do. Life is short, you know? So I, I wanted to do what my heart had always been called to do and it was, there, there's a lot of limitations in some of these, uh, especially in, I had worked at the school district right before private practice. And there's so many boundaries and rules about what kind of work you can do with kids and families. And so it was so awesome to be able to go into this realm, for one thing, being trained in uh, EMDR and being able to work with people in that capacity, but also to just really work with the whole person. You know, where you're working with someone's spirituality, their sexuality, their relationships. Um, and, and I work with adults. I only I only see one teenager right now, but I've really honed my practice to 18 and up. So it's it's just been it's such a fabulous journey. I mean, the last 12 years have been amazing for me. So you're writing a book now, right? <laughs> yes. You have a radio show. You're writing a book. 
Uh, tell me more about the book and where that is. That's exciting for me. That that's awesome because, as I said, you know, I've I, I have a couple uh, I have a couple published poems from way back when I had started writing a book. Oh my gosh, now fifteen years ago that never came to fruition. And, and writing has been a really big part of my life. Um, but finally, it was just like, it was just time. It was the time. And this 30 years of experience and all the different, you know, tools that I've learned through the course of my career, I was like, just like, just like with the radio show. I mean, it's like, this is a way to share this with an even greater audience. And it and I am almost done, and it has been an absolute. It, seriously, it's been such a delight, and one of those things where it's just felt guided. Um, I started last January, and started writing it at Benny's, which was Benny's on the beach, which is in Florida. It, it was just perfect timing. So I, I had a week there that I was hanging out while my husband was actually at a Tony Robbins event. And I had bowed out because I had been at a Tony Robbins event the summer before and didn't want to duplicate it. And I thought, I need the time. I'll just write. And that's what I did. So every morning I would wake up and write for a few hours. I would I would take myself, I'd get an Uber and take myself to a different beach I hadn't explored before and go hang out on the beach and write. And it was awesome um, and so inspiring and so I'm, I'm really hoping it's of value to people. I mean, it, it truly is, um, has been a labor of love. I, I guess I would say it's, it's, uh, any wisdom that I've gleaned, things that I've seen transform people's lives, things that I've seen, you know, light up people's lives and help them reclaim themselves or their voice, um, enhancing their life, things that have enhanced my own life and given me a drive where, you know, I, I have never given up. No matter what challenges face me, I've, I've been able to develop a kind of resiliency. Um, and then, you know, the, the lovely addition from the book has been this last year with you on The Spark and being able to interview Lumineers in so many different areas. It's I mean, it's just been an amazing dream come true. I mean, there's literally times I just have to pinch myself because... Now the rock stars that I have are people that have been my heroes in, you know, in, in psychology or psychiatry, um, scientists, you know, these entrepreneurs, authors, you know, all these motivational speakers, the, the, the wonderful people and to be able to meet them as well as, you know, it's, it's, it's again, you know, it's like Jacob Lieberman said, we're all the same height. So whether it's somebody who's, successful and has New York Times bestsellers, or whether it's the person that serves me coffee at mugs, you know, who's an incredible person that we had on the show. Each person is a value and they have something amazing to share. And that that's kind of was our original idea, you know, in creating the spark together was, um, you know, it's, it's a medium for sharing that. And hopefully we, we can help generate kind of like this collective consciousness, if you will, where we're all helping to buoy each other up where we're all lifting each other um, and sharing whatever gifts and, and experiences we've had along the way so that that's, that's what we can do is collectively become more aware, become more healed and whole and enrich each other's lives in that way.
Stephanie James is a psychotherapist and author in Fort Collins, Colorado. She's putting the finishing touches on her book and is looking to have it published in 2019. You can hear Stephanie every week right here on The Spark with Stephanie James. You know, we all have so much to offer, to give to the world. Stephanie gives of herself day in and day out in her private practice, here on the show with her guests, and with her friends and family. She had a promising, albeit brief, career in art and in fashion modeling, but her heart just wasn't in it. Instead, she packed up her California life and moved back home to Colorado. She planted roots here and devoted herself to helping others, to sharing the spark that's within herself, and to guide others to find their own. Like so many people, I'm inspired by her all the time, to be better and to give more. It truly is a gift, and we could do with more people like Stephanie James in the world. Remember, The Spark is your show, too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain, right here on NoCo FM, and podcasts are released the following day. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. This show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or emotional health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NoCo Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Chris Lanfear.